0: Support for The Forwards Bental Brief Podcast comes from listeners like you and from Edward Blank, whose generosity makes this program possible.
1: Okay, Gina, here's the scenario. You're on one of those game shows where they set you loose in a mall for a 10-minute $1,000 shopping spree. Where do you go and what do you buy?
0: <laughs> okay, this is easy. Sephora, because I'm a sucker for an exfoliant. <laughs> and William Sonoma, because I love to cook.
1: Ah, okay. We're very close, very close. I would follow you to Sephora myself for a bold lip. And then I would follow you to William Sonoma. And I would just like sweep as many Le Creuset items into my cart as possible.
0: And since we only have $1,000, that's about one and a half pots. Maybe a specialty spoon if they're doing that now. <laughs>
1: When a problem comes along, you must call
0: us. Before you suffer for too long, you must call us. Or email. B-I-N-T-E-L at forward com. Or leave us a voicemail at 201-540-9728. Again, that's 201-540-9728. I say call us.
1: Call us now. <laughs> The shirts and marriage and money. Oh my. Today, we're going to talk about them all. First, Gina and I will discuss the letter, make some calls, hopefully sneak in a joke or two, and then go to the Bintel Brief's font of ancestral wisdom, the Forwards archivist Hannah Pollock. And for the grand finale, we tap an expert.
0: This episode, we're talking with Rabbi Georgette Kennebray, who combines her pastoral deep listening skills with a passion for finances in her work as a financial advisor.
1: Here's our letter.
0: Dear Bentle, I'm a woman in my mid 30s with a successful career and a full, vibrant personal life. Four months ago, I started dating a new man. I'm at a place in my life where I'm done with flings and I'm assessing the men I date as a potential life partner rather than another fun ride. So I'm looking at this man very carefully. We're quite different in some ways, but I appreciate the deep peace and sense of safety he brings to my very dynamic existence. There are a few things about him that give me pause but the biggest one is money. About a decade ago, he dropped off the professional career track and chose to pursue a simpler, slower path, prioritizing his spiritual values, a choice that has significantly lowered his earning power. I'm not primarily motivated by money, and I make enough to support myself on my own. But I've always imagined my life partner bringing in as much money as I do to the partnership. It wasn't in my vision to be the primary breadwinner to support a family. As I consider this man as a real contender, I find myself coming up against my own expectations about what my male partner should earn and financially contribute to a partnership. So I'm wondering, should I work through my inherited gendered stereotypes and desire for a lifestyle where money isn't a constant worry and give it a real go with this man? Or should I honor my own original vision of partnership and break it off now before we get in too deep? Signed, for richer or poorer, she, her, hers.
1: Okay, the first thing I want to just shout from the rooftops is women should not feel bad for having concerns about partnering and money. I just don't want her to feel bad for asking this. I never want women to feel like they have to apologize for wanting what they want. I feel like we always have to apologize for wanting children, for not wanting children, for wanting to make money, for not wanting to make money. Like, you can't win for losing. Everything is set up to scold us. Reading between the lines, I can sense whether it's guilt or sheepishness or something for for asking about this. You know, I can hear the culture that we live in saying she threw away a great guy so she could be comfortable. Well, isn't she materialistic? But I don't think that's what's going on here. She makes sure to tell us that she's not primarily motivated by money. And also, we should note there's a difference between wanting a lifestyle and a lifestyle <laughs> like
0: a yacht. And I get that, but honestly, this question surprised me. For richer or for poorer, says she can support herself. And if that's the case, she can create the life that she wants on her own. If she doesn't want the yacht and she's in her mid-30s, she has plenty of time to build that life without money stress.
1: Well, sure. I mean, she's clearly competent and and I believe she'll be able to earn whatever she wants to. But I think what she's asking here is really more about balance. You know, like, am I going to be forking exhausted? is the earning and providing going to be all on my shoulders?
0: And, you know, I guess the other piece, too, is that even though she could make this life on her own, it's normal to want to make it with someone else. So I get that part. But to me, that means that at the core of the decision to stay or go is going to hinge on whether she feels like she actually does need a partner to create a lifestyle. And then it's a question of whether she can manage either not having that lifestyle or being the primary provider of it. And, you know, dare I say that managing those feelings about not having that lifestyle or being their primary provider of the one that you do want, just managing those feelings is probably not enough because money is a big deal for people in relationships. She's going to have to embrace them, not just manage them if this is going to work.
1: Yeah, I think those are the right questions to kind of game out in advance. And on top of all of them, I would put a big giant sign that says, you never know. You never know what's going to happen in marriage as in life. True. I've been married 19 years. And when we got married, I was doing pretty well as a journalist. And then magazines kind of all went to hell. And then I founded a company. I used to have reliable, you know, long-term contract work. And now I'm an entrepreneur, which by nature is very, shall we say dynamic. (laughs) And somewhere in the middle, we had two kids. So like none of how that went was predictable from where we started. And he also, he went to school, he switched jobs, you know, we were all over the place. And so entering a marriage, you just don't know anything about anything, or you don't know much about everything. And I'm not saying that she's going to like discover one day that money is not important to her. I'm just saying you don't know where life will take you. At the end of the day, I think the real question for her to ask is, is this guy gonna have her back? Is he gonna be her partner in all or other ways? Is he sturdy and reliable, paycheck or not? I mean, she used the words peace and safety with him, which says a lot. Or is there something squirrely about him that's lurking somewhere in the finance division that she can't quite put her finger on? I don't know. Really, if we're talking about stability, Stability is not only financial. You could marry a rich person and have no stability at all. Yeah. I remember a conversation with uh, two women friends a while ago where one was on the fence about a guy and the other friend turned to her and asked her this great question that I've never forgotten. She said, do you feel like you want to run things by him? Mm. And I have never forgotten that because I think I thought, you know, how you answer that question really reveals not everything, but almost everything you need to know about how you feel about a potential life
0: partner. That is true. But what if you want to run things by him and also have a little money? I mean, like that can't be the only (laughs) thing too, right? But I think it's a great proxy to surface feelings that are, you know, really sometimes hard to put a finger on. Regarding how for richer or for poorer feels about this guy, To me, it looks like she's actually done quite the assessment already. I don't have any reason to believe that's not true. So it makes me wonder if there's something about her history with money or financial security in her young life that makes this extremely important for her. I mean, this guy's a 10, but his paycheck is giving her cold feet. So like, is being able to achieve that lifestyle, not just about the lifestyle itself, but what financial security, the ability to achieve that lifestyle signifies for her? You know, it makes me think about my own marriage. In, in my case, my husband and I had very different financial upbringings. So when our bank balance starts dipping, neither of us like it, but it doesn't keep me from sleeping. So our response to that is to let me deal largely with money and things costing a lot. I handle those emotions because he has a huge stress response to that stuff. And that's something that he's grown up with and is not going to change. And maybe she has something similar. This whole thing, I have to say as an aside, this
1: whole thing reminds me of the the punchline of that particularly good old Yiddish joke, which, by the way, is
0: funny when told by Jewish people. And the punchline is, you Jews, always with the money. (laughs) Yes, only by Jewish people, folks. So while that stereotype of the money obsessed Jew is bad for the Jews, this joke also belongs in the category of it's funny because it's true. But sometimes the money isn't for the money's sake. And I say that because... As I was thinking about money and marriage and Jewish tradition, I remembered this really interesting alternative to the ring exchange in the Jewish wedding tradition. And not even really alternative, but it was, you know, the way it went for many people. Because throughout history, not everyone has been able to acquire or afford a nice gold ring, which is now the standard for traditional Jewish wedding. But something tangible and something of value was required to seal the deal. You had to have something. And in those instances, a couple would have used a coin, another object like a ring that is round and smooth. They would use that to symbolize their eternal love and their hopes for an unbothered marriage. There was always something physical to represent that union and that deal. So our
1: letter writer's concern is right there in the history of Jewish marriage liturgy. I mean, this this ritual to to prove that each party is bringing something of value to the table. So both that ritual and for richer or for poorer, expect the contributions to be of equal monetary value. But my advice to her is to really think about whether this guy is actually bringing something else that's different but equally valuable to the table. Or perhaps even more to the point, something that will have equal
0: value over time. Mm. Yes. And like you said, we don't know what's going to happen in a marriage, but we do know that right now the money piece is giving her pause. And unless she's prepared to do things or think things differently about that money piece, it might not matter about all of the other amazing qualities and characteristics that he brings to the table. Because like she said, he's almost there. He's only got a few, a few demerits and money is the biggest one. So based on all of that, my call for richer or for poorer is that she should stick around for the time being. For the time being, it's only been four months, right? She can give it a little bit more time, but that she really needs to ask questions about whether she can be comfortable with the life where she's the main one responsible for the lifestyle that she wants. And I think I know what you're going to say, but what's your call, Lynn?
1: my call is don't bail yet. You don't actually know what's going to happen. You don't actually know that your lifestyles are going to be that different. He hasn't told you, listen, I want only to live in a yurt and eat Cheerios out of the box. So it's very important to think carefully about money and about one's feelings about money in the meantime, but do not bail yet.
0: Hi, my name is Yehuda Kurtzer, and I'm the host of Identity Crisis, a weekly podcast about news and ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute. You know, Judaism in North America is complicated, and it's easy to get caught up in the story of the day or the news cycle and to miss the bigger picture of what's going on. Each week on Identity Crisis, I talk with major thinkers, some famous and some not, about the ideas behind the story, with topics like Jewish life in Ukraine, the shortage of rabbis in America, whether or not impossible pork should be kosher, and the future of liberal Zionism. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can find the show everywhere podcasts are available. I hope you'll take a listen. And thanks.
1: Next up, a letter from the Forwards Archive and some real talk with Hannah Pollock. Welcome, Khanna.
0: Hi, Lynn. Hi, Gina. Hi. Hello. So, Khanna, what have you got to help for richer or poorer?
2: Well, this week in 1979, Bintel. We've got an elderly widow who is uh, feeling kind of anxious about the propositions of a second marriage.
0: From where does the anxiety spring? Well, let's take a
2: look. Here's her letter. I'm a woman in my 60s. I lost my husband three years ago. My three children are married. And I'm a grandmother to five grandchildren. I've got a modest income. I don't need anyone's support. But it's a lonely life and I'm embittered. And friends have started talking to me about getting married again. And my friends also tell me that I'd have no problems finding a husband because I still look young. I know, though, that second marriages aren't like the first ones, and I think I probably won't be able to find such a loving partner as I first had. I often spend time with friends where I've met a widower the same age as me who also knew my husband, but he's already decrepit-seeming. <laughs> that was a great Yiddish word, opgelept. He He appears as if, you know, life has gone through him already. My friends also introduced me to a man who I like and who wants to get married. They tell me we're the same age, but he looks much younger. I know two younger women who married a second, uh, second time, and they really aren't happy. So what I hear from them is terrifying me. And she asked the forward, I wonder what you think. Signed, a lonely widow. So she's lonely and she's bitter, but she's met like two dudes. Well, one, one she swiped, what is it, swiped left? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, she's, like, not too old.
0: She already knows what she wants. She wants companionship for these twilight years of her life. She doesn't want to be lonely and bitter anymore. And a value for her is someone who still has some vitality. I feel like maybe she needs to make a few new friends. You know, just a clarifying question.
1: Did you call your 60s your twilight years? (laughs) Wait.
0: (laughs) I'm just saying, you know. Well,
1: you're going to have to say it louder because my aging ears didn't hear you. <laughs> right? <laughs> so I want to hear what the forward said, but I, I just want to agree with you on a point and just dig in for a second, which is there's companionship and there's romantic partnership. And it doesn't mean that she wants one but not the other. But it sounds to me like, you know, her. her again, her data set is of these two women who wanted some sort of companionship and maybe... Went with the first opportunity that came along or Mm -hmm. I can see, you know, not vetting your second husband for as long as you vetted your first one. I get it. It's your twilight years. (laughs) I think that's the piece for her to explore. It's not that she does want one and doesn't want the other, but that different types of relationships can provide different things. So what what did the forward
2: say? Not once have we commented here that one needs to fear second marriages, but one has to be careful not to make a false move. We're of the opinion that it would be very practical for you to marry a second time. The women's experiences who didn't find their second marriages to be happy ones mustn't upset you. It happens that women and men become disappointed in their second marriages, but it also happens to younger couples who remarry after their first marriages. If you like the man you met, you must get to know him really well. The fact that he looks a bit younger than you shouldn't prevent you from marrying him. The point is, you must get to know his character very well. So there I actually thought that that was the connector in a lot of ways to the original writer. You know, sort of being outside of societal expectations and that kind of tweaking you a little bit. You're like, oh, he looks a lot younger than me. How's that going to play? Like, you know, that's kind of making her nervous. But also the general expectations in your senior years or twilight years, of, uh, you know, really, like, who is this person? Because it does, I think it is kind of happening for her. That's what I hear, is that it's happening a little bit fast. And um, she's also, like our writer in the uh, letter, she's um, financially stable. So he looks younger. How do you say cougar in
0: Yiddish? Um. <laughs> <laughs> Hana consults the Yiddish dictionary. This is amazing. Been told listeners, we have stumped our archivist. Okay, but really,
2: cougar—they didn't have a cougar in Poland. There were
0: no cougars in Poland. Fair, um, but so I think you're right, Hana. That 1979 and today's, for richer, for poorer, they both are in a situation of needing to get to know the guy. In 1979, the letter writer needed to ask questions about him. And for, for richer or for poorer, she's asking a different set of questions of him, but really of herself. What does she need in partnership and companionship and in this relationship for it to be what she needs it to be going forward?
1: They both do have to think about what they want, kind of, and who they are. But I think who we are and what we want morphs a little bit, depending on who we're who we're with, in a perfectly fine way. Different things come in and out of focus
0: when you're with different people. Right. And the people and the person that you would be with any one person is a different person, too. Hannah, you always manage to bring us the perfect letter, and we love you for it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you on behalf of the Gray Panthers. Fishman Federson, publisher and CEO of the Forward. We're a reader-supported nonprofit, and my job is to make us sustainable so we can continue our 125-year legacy of hosting and driving the most important American Jewish conversations. Our grandparents relied on the forward, and we're making sure it'll be here for our grandchildren. If you care about independent Jewish journalism, please support us with a donation
3: of any size at forward.com/slash donate.
0: And now Back to richer or poorer with advice from an expert. And a very warm welcome to Rabbi Georgette Kennebrae. After years in the pulpit, she now works as a financial advisor with a side hustle officiating destination weddings and other life cycle events all over the world.
1: And one official note, nothing in Rabbi Georgette's interview today should be construed as financial advice or solicitation to purchase or sell any securities. Hi Rabbi, and welcome to A Brief.
0: Thanks for having me. So first question, you're a rabbi,
3: you're a financial advisor. Tell us, where's the overlap? People are oftentimes quite surprised, but there is actually substantial overlap. One of the things that I love the most about being a rabbi is to be able to journey with people, and that was particularly important in congregational work where I could sit with and be with and walk beside people in moments of joy and seasons of deep pain, helping them think through what the tools they have at their disposal to, um, from a strengths-based approach and a spiritual lens was very deeply meaningful to me. Similarly, in financial planning, it's about deep listening, going beyond the words that are being said, but what has been learned underneath that. So for example, one of the things I always remind people is that money is always more than just math. What is our relationship to money? All of us have a relationship to money. And so to be able to sit with someone and to help them really pull up the values that they hold dearly and what their goals are in life and how to navigate each of those lifestyle changes. And so it's great to be able to do that work.
1: So money is financial, obviously. Money is emotional, as you've just said. Can money also be spiritual?
3: Absolutely. So one of the things that One of the ways that I became really interested in money was from my personal experience, but also from my rabbinic experience. Torah has so much to say about finances and um, our Jewish traditions and our texts talk about how we take care of others, how we utilize our money. In Judaism, money is neither considered good or bad. Um, Being rich is not good. Being poor is not good or bad. It's what we do with money. Money is a tool. And There are oftentimes ways in Judaism in which we live out our spiritual beliefs. And so absolutely, I think that there's a spiritual aspect to it. The other aspect is, as we think about how we want to move through the world spiritually, um, money can allow us to do that more easily, or it can be a hindrance if we're not able to let go of things that um, are getting in our way.
1: So let's say you're talking to one of the couple's that you're going to marry, what do you advise them as both a rabbi and a financial advisor to think about regarding their finances?
3: So one of the meetings that I'll have with the couple that I'm working with is for them to just share with me what was money like in your family? Did you talk about it? Did you not? How do you see yourselves and your money history similar to one another as two partners coming together to think about money? Have you discussed How you want to hold your money? Are you keeping it individually with a joint account? Are you going to combine everything? All of those things are important, but you can't get to the financial talkless logistics piece until as well, if you haven't thought about the overarching, what money concepts and assumptions are we bringing into this relationship? The second thing that I would say is, what do you want your money to do for you, right? Because if money is indeed a tool, then the question is, how do we apply it to the life that we want to best lead?
0: Mm. And in thinking about For Richer or For Poorer, our letter writer for today, you know, you mentioned couples needing to talk about their financial history, how they grew up. What does it take for someone to rewire deeply entrenched beliefs or behaviors around money within the context of building a relationship with a new person? And have you seen people be able to do that? Have you worked with a couple who was, you know, who might have been on totally opposite ends of a spectrum of money management and relationship, but then worked to modify that to be together?
3: One of the things that I loved about the question from the reader who wrote in was at the end of it, she was able to say... Maybe I need to revisit the gendered stereotypes that I have and the assumptions. And so she's already begun doing this work. She's asking hard questions. She's trying to figure out what she wants to do and what is the right path for her. And part of the rewiring is to be able to acknowledge some of the things that we have received serve us well, and some of them don't. And um, a couple of years ago, I did a, a workshop um, that I titled Financial Tashlik right before the High Holy Days, this idea of releasing the financial pieces that no longer serve us to make room for those that do. And so that's part of the work. And it's hard work. It's hard for the individual. It's hard for the couple. And sometimes it can be hard for the larger families of origin too. But by doing that deep um, dive and allowing yourself to do the hard work, it opens up space to connect with our partners. And we won't always agree, but it goes back to the piece about money being a tool. And with this particular reader, one of the things that I thought about was, you know, she said, I have the ability to support myself already. She's already living the life that she would like to live. For many people with a certain amount of income, there's a lot of studies that say after you get your basic needs met and that then no amount after that is going to increase your happiness. Not 300,000 more, not 200,000 more, not a million more. And so that's why if you go from 20,000 to 50,000, you can see a substantial difference because money can fix problems. But after those basic problems and needs are met, then it's just about living a life that you find uh, meaningful and whole, which it sounds like our reader is already doing. So um, what I would suggest for people is, If you've already figured out how to make it happen, why does it feel like you're losing something? And always the question is, what is enough?
1: So for richer or for poorer, what would you say to her? Should she stay or should she go?
3: I don't think she has enough information. I think she's just begun the work, right? And so going back to what is the value, if everything else that this person brings to her life brings joy, and the only piece that she's struggling with is, can he keep up financially, quote, unquote? Where is she trying to keep up to? Has she actually been able to identify how much money does she need? What does she think she's going to lose? If she can have a beautiful life, but a less fancy car, for example, the car will still get her to where she needs to go. And so my thought would just be there's more conversation to be had.
0: I feel affirmed by the rabbi. (laughs) Thank you, Rabbi Georgette Kennebray, for joining us. It was a true delight to have you on the podcast today.
1: I feel enriched by the rabbi.
3: (laughs) (laughs) It's truly a delight.
0: And last but not least, we give you... A mental Bliss! My kids are,
1: quote-unquote, half-Jewish. By Jewish law, they're Jewish because I, their mother, am Jewish. Their father is Hindu, and by Hindu law, they're Hindu. I'm less religious, but expose the kids to more Jewish traditions. Their father considers himself more religious, but he doesn't expose the kids to Hindu culture. So,
0: what are they? They're yours, <laughs> gentle listener. They're yours. They're Jews, they're Hindu. Like, that's it, they're
1: both. There is no mathematical answer to this question, Some people use the term half to describe what you're describing, but they're multi-layered, everybody, everything that you and their father have brought to them. No matter what, they will be infused with all of the identities that they were both natured and nurtured with. Lucky kids.
0: So you're exposing them to Judaism. They're sort of being exposed to Hinduism. As long as you're not exposing them to monkeypox, I think we're all (laughs) set. If something's on your mind, you could go see a therapist.
3: Or
1: you could ask us to weigh in
0: for free. Write in to B I N T E L at Forward.com or call 201 540 9728. We won't diagnose you with an Oedipus complex, promise. (laughs) This podcast is a product of the Forward. Our editor-in-chief is Jody Rudoren, and our CEO and publisher is Rachel Fishman-Federsen. The show is produced by Wonder Media Network, and our producer is Alessandra Wollner. Our production assistant is Carmen Borca Carrillo, and our executive producer is Jenny Kaplan. Special thanks again to Edward Blank, whose generosity makes this show possible.